morning we're taking a, a break from our study of Luke. We're actually going to Luke's second volume in Acts. And in this passage that Mike just read for us, uh, we see the very beginning of the, the New Testament church here, the very beginning. We see Peter and the other apostles. We'll see them in Acts preaching and teaching and leading the church. Uh, we'll see eventually the apostle Paul pop up in Acts. And in the, in the New Testament, where the church is growing and just developing, the apostles and the leaders, and we'll see this, they were concerned for the believers to continue in the faith. They were very concerned that the believers continue in the faith. In Acts 14, it's recorded Paul and Barnabas, uh, after they, they ministered at some towns, they went back to a, a, a several of them. And this is what Luke writes in 14.22. He says, Strengthen. So they go back, strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In Colossians, Paul writes to the, the, the Christians in Colossians, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, he writes this, Take care, brothers, Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original covenant firm to the end. So there's this exhortation, continue in the faith. There's absolute confidence in God's sovereignty and love that you hold on. But they still exhort, continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. Not necessarily something that we hear a lot nowadays. This, this the exhortation, just continue in the faith. Especially with uh, hardships, what the New Testament church will be going through, the different persecutions. Opposition will get for, as we read in the, the Beatitudes, on the account of the Son of Man. When the world hates us because we oppose abortion, the world will hate us because we oppose their redefinition of love and of marriage and sexuality. This call to continue in the faith is not only from the outside, but inside. Our own laziness and indifference and pride that just pulls us away. It's kind of, it hinders us from continuing the faith. Christ, in the book of Revelation, wrote seven letters to the churches. One to Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus. Jesus writes this through through John, says, But I have this against you, talk about the church in Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. A call of repent. Go back. You have abandoned your love. If not, I will remove your lampstand. Meaning, your church will end. It may still continue and exist, but it's done. The ministry there is done. And so this call to, to continue in the faith is the same call we have today is continue in the faith. In the midst of the unknown and the fear with, uh, with the COVID virus, the unknown and how the government will respond, and the unknown how people in public will respond, we're called to continue in the faith. When there's intense persecution for our brothers and sisters of Christ in Nigeria right now who are getting slaughtered, the call is to continue in the faith. 
So in the midst of the trials and hardships that different members in our church who are just going through what seems like hell with their family, the call is to continue in the faith. So this morning, I've, I've titled the sermon, The Ordinary Christian Life. The Ordinary Christian Life. Because the ordinary Christian life is to continue in the faith. In our passage this morning, we see the ordinary Christian life of the very early church and how they continued in the faith. And so this is the main idea I want us to get today. You are called to live the ordinary Christian life, which has extraordinary impact by the grace and work of God. You are called to live the ordinary Christian life, which has extraordinary impact because of the work and grace of God. Continue in the faith, live the ordinary Christian life, and it will result in extraordinary impact because of the work and grace of God. So if you have not already, open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. If, if you don't have your Bible, there's a Bible right in front of you in the pew. And if you're using the Bible uh, provided here with the church, it'll be on page 857. So Acts chapter 2, uh, as you're turning there or as you are there, the passage that Mike read to us is literally at the heels of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come. The, the New Testament church has begun. Peter has just stood up and preached an amazing sermon. It says that Luke writes that they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And so they asked Peter, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And then we see right before our passage, it says that they, they received his word, they were baptized, and there's about 3,000 people, 3,000 people that came to Christ. And the question is kind of, now what? We've got 3,000 people. Now what do we do with them? And then we got this nice summary by Luke, which he does throw ask, gives these nice summaries every now and then, it summarizes Okay, this is what happened. The 3,000 were saved. This is what their ordinary Christian life looked like as they continued in the faith. So we look at that today. And so we'll see what they focused on, their ordinary Christian life, and then we'll see the impact that God used in it. Okay? So the first part, their ordinary Christian life, number one, point one, is obedience. Obedience, which is what I would call the love of the church. Right at the beginning it says, and they devoted themselves. And I call obedience the love of the church because it is clear throughout the New Testament that if you love God, if you love Christ, it will be expressed in obedience. John 14, right towards the end that Jesus, right before he's crucified, John 14, four times alone in that chapter, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll be my commands. If you love me, you will follow what I say. You will do this. We can say that we love God all we want. We can say that we experience him so much and we can feel his presence all we want to say. But if we are not growing in obedience to God, we're just talking. It's all it is to talk. Because our love for God is seen in obedience. In the obedience uh, as love of the church is seen immediately in our passage. Peter preaches, 3,000 saved, and then they obey. Then there's this growing obedience. And look at this. Salvation 
is not the end, it's the beginning. Salvation in the sense of the immediate, uh, saved by God, forgiven, justified that moment. That's the beginning. It is not the end. Peter preaches, and they're saved, but that is not the end. That's the beginning. The goal is not merely to trust in Christ. We pray and we strive to the end, Sharon. Don't get me wrong, but that is not the end. That's the beginning. These people were then discipled. As we read the passage, they were then in small groups. They were gathering. They were devoting themselves to the teaching, to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, to generosity. They, they didn't end with just getting saved. And so if, if, if you're here today, Christian, and you've trusted in Christ and God has saved you, praise God. Praise God alone that he has done that for you, that he has worked in your life. But that, if that's all it is and you have not been growing, what have you been doing? And I don't say that in a mean way. But God calls us to obey. We see that in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, uh, make disciples, baptizing them, and teach them to obey all that command. That's with the Great Commission, this obedience. Obedience is essential. In 1 John, it's clear that the alternative to growth and obedience is to not be a Christian at all. 1 John. The alternative to not growing in obedience is not to be a Christian at all. And we see in the very context that the first step of obedience in this passage is baptism. They received this word, they had faith, and then they were baptized. That's the first step of obedience we see. That's commanded by Christ, uh, baptism. And we as a church can celebrate this. Because last week, I believe it was last week, three of our church family were baptized. Uh, not here at church, but somewhere else. And it came from the same family, the Vol family, Amber, Roman, and Kendall. Uh, if you want to stare at them, just to make them feel awkward for just a second. Yeah, can we get affirmations? Praise God. So see, baptism as the first step of obedience. The ordinary Christian life to continuing the faith, the first point we see in the New Testament church is continuing the faith by obeying, growing obedience. We're not perfect, but by God's grace, He, through His grace, empowers us to obey. Well, that's, that's what we see in this first point. The ordinary Christian life is a calling to obedience, and this obedience is the law of the church. Clearly, if you love Christ, you will obey Him. So that's the first point. The second point we see in ordinary Christian life is doctrine. And that's a swear word in some churches, unfortunately. Doctrine. I'm going to call that the soul of the church. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so remember, this is at the very beginning. They did not have the New Testament we have. The apostles did not write the letters we have right now in the New Testament. They have not gotten to that point yet. So the, the measure of orthodoxy, of true teaching, was what the apostles taught. They had the Old Testament, which is what they based all of it off of, we see, they're teaching the person and the work of Christ in the light of the Old Testament, and they're teaching this. And so the New Testament believers, how do they live this ordinary Christian life? They obey, and they devote themselves to the teaching, the doctrine. And this is vital, this is absolutely important, because it informs, it produces the fellowship and unity we have is the doctrine of Christ, about Christ. And as I said, there's, there's a lot of kind of contemporary 
uh, Christian American culture, this idea of, well, I don't really need doctrine or kind of anti-doctrine. Like, just that word, uh, sometimes the sentiment is, hey, I just need to love Christ and then share love with others. What I don't think they understand or don't recognize is, okay, what is love? What is Christ? Who is Christ? Uh, who do you share with? What do you share? And the answer to all those questions is doctrine. You're, you're, it's literally, you have to have doctrine as a foundation. It is what produces that. It is the effect of that. And so we do a great disservice if we say, ah, it's not that important. You just have to love God, love others. That sounds great. Uh, amen. Full heart affirmation. But what does that mean? It's God's word that tells us. Dr. Martin Lord Jones, he uh, he preached a sermon Acts, and he kept on saying that the the church is not just a social gathering. That's not all we. That's not what we're about. We're not just a, a community organizer of events. That's not what the church is. But the church has the very word of living God. A summary of that of that sermon he is written as this. He says the church of the church of Acts was far more than a social gathering. But it was the power of God manifest on earth through the work of the Spirit. The early church did not grow by attracting people by appealing to man's carnal desire, but through the power of the gospel. It is this gospel that the church is tasked with guarding and proclaiming. It is this glorious gospel that can transform the lives of those around us. If the church today and beyond is to be faithful steward of his gospel, it must commit itself to a teaching in the works of the apostles as found in God's word. We have the very words of the living God. The doctrine, if you will. So if we're here today and we decry the moral decay of our nation, if we decry what seems to be the breakdown of a lot of churches within the U.S., we need to recognize that the key contributing factor is that we have rejected the apostles' teaching, God's word. We rejected it by not proclaiming it in the culture and rather have substituted it for being nice and to be accepted by culture. We've rejected it in our churches and we've become embarrassed and ashamed of what God says about sexuality, what God says about killing babies, about what God says about what the household should be set up. We're ashamed and embarrassed of it. We'd rather be accepted by the world and we would all be seen as weirdos become embarrassed that we sometimes we justify this embarrassment and rejection by saying, well, we, we want to be a good witness. Yes. And we do that by proclaiming God's word, by upholding God's word. Ian Murray, he wrote this. Uh, he's become a church historian, a biographer. He wrote this. All spiritual weakness is ultimately due to a poverty of thought about God. The church's first need is always for objective knowledge, and that is why, in God's mercy, a rediscovery of biblical doctrine is the precursor of greater blessing. The Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Truth in the Bible, has inspired God's Word. And the mark of a nominal Christian is the absence of any thrill or desire for God's Word. The absence of the Holy Spirit, how do you see that? An absence of being of no longer being impacted by God's word, no longer being convicted by God's word, no longer being 
uh, encouraged and, and built up in confidence by God's word. We see that that's an absence of the Holy Spirit, is we were no longer affected by God's word, whether as convicted, encouragement, strengthened, uh, whatever. An absence of the Holy Spirit is seen by an absence of the impact of God's word. The teaching and preaching of God's word is foundational to the growth and the spiritual health of the church. And that's why I think I said last week, the day we phase out the teaching and preaching of God's word for something relevant is the day we become irrelevant to our house community and to our church family. And so we see one of the marks and points of the ordinary Christian life is devotion to the apostles' teaching, to God's word, to doctrine. Number three, we see the early church, and they continued in the faith, is fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And it's this fellowship that flows from this doctrine. In 1 John, right at the beginning, he writes this, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you, may, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The glue that holds us together is our faith in Christ. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about unity. talks about us growing in unity. And what does he preface that? It says, this unity is our unity in faith. We're growing in this maturity in the, in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what we grow towards. That's our, our fellowship flows from this doctrine, our faith in Christ. With this fellowship, it also means partnership. It's not a passive being together. It's a contribution. We see it throughout Scripture. The same word is, is translated uh, contribution, a sharing, a uh, partnership. We see it in Philippians 1.5. Paul, talking to the, the, church, the Christians in Philippi, he says, because of your partnership, same word, fellowship, in the gospel from the first day until now. In Galatians, Paul writes, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be circumcised. It's this partnership, this active together, this contribution, not just a passive being. So the church is not just a spectator sport. We gather together, we participate. And that's why we have small groups. Smaller groups that we're able to connect more. That's why we have Sunday school classes. That's why we have these monthly church family events. This is why we have the Operation Christmas Child that we, together we serve, together we participate. And there's two kind of side points, outworkings of this fellowship. Number one is generosity. And we have just been really emphasizing that, uh, was it last week or two weeks ago as we went through Luke, about uh, love and then about the Beatitudes, this blessing, the love, blessing of being... Uh, of being generous and this love being expressed in generosity. You'll see in verse 44, and all who believed, describing this early church, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they're selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Let me say right from the beginning, this is not describing socialism or communism. They did not live in a commune. Clearly, they still had personal property, they were choosing to sell it to give to those in need. And this was not uncommon in that day. So remember, you got you got Jerusalem, right? And there's a, a three feasts, I believe, that all of the male Jews need to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And one of them was Pentecost. And so at this time, it was Pentecost. And so it was very normal, like in the Passover, that Jerusalem would just swell in size because of all the male Jews and the other Jews 
who have come to celebrate the feast. And the inns at the place were totally overrun. They could not take everyone in. And so the common people would take people into their houses. So this idea of the Mohammed all things in common was not unknown. It was not uncommon. It happened three times a year at least where they did this. And so this was at Pentecost. You got 3,000 people who probably may have been from out of town. They don't have all their stuff. And they're like, okay, what do we do now? We've got, we're trying to figure this out. Potentially, some of them lost their jobs and their connections because now they're Christians and they're being kicked out, at least soon to be. And so they start selling their property in order to care for those in need. This wasn't to destroy personal property, but it was to destroy personal selfishness. And we see that within this, this immense generosity. And so part of this fellowship is generosity. The other part of the fellowship we see here is gathering. Verse 44, and all who believed were together. Verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together. They gather in their homes. We see that clearly. They gather in these small groups. And there's 3,000 people here. They gather in these small groups, but they still came together as the church. They still were able to meet in the temple, most likely the synagogues, because the Jews have not kicked them to the curb yet in, in intense persecution. They haven't done that yet in church history here. But they were together. Most likely not all 3,000 together at once, except for at the temple, but in these groups, most likely based on their languages or other associations. The word church literally means the assembly of the called out ones. The assembly, the gathering of the ones called out believers. So in the name itself is this essence of gathering. Gather together. Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider how to serve one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Matthew Henry, he, he described it as, it's their rendezvous point. Uh, I thought that was good, just kind of funny. Their rendezvous, that's where they, rendezvous, where they get together, and then they go out with this, this same common mission, this partnership, this fellowship together of the gospel and the Great Commission, of baptizing, leading people to Christ, and teach them to obey all things. And so from this fellowship, the statement, hey, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to a local church. Hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really committed to a local church, is not existent in the book of Acts. There's no such thing of that in Acts. If you're a Christian, you're part of a local church. We need the fellowship together. And so the ordinary Christian life Discontinuing the faith in the other church was obedience, this growing obedience to Christ, this devotion to the apostles' teaching, and this devotion to the fellowship together. Next one, the fourth point, and there's five points in this first section, is the Lord's Supper. And you'll see this when they say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. And everyone agrees that breaking the bread is specifically referred to the Lord's Supper. That which Jesus commanded his church to partake in in remembrance of him which we, we, we do once a month. We regularly partake of the Lord's Supper. It's the, the lifeblood of the church is the Lord's Supper. We drink the wine or the juice. We eat the bread, celebrating and remembering the blood of Christ that was shed for us and his body that was broken for us. The new covenant that we have with God through Christ, we commune with God, we fellowship with God, and we eat because of what Jesus has done. 
I'm going to throw his name out there again. Matthew Henry. I love the way he described this. Listen to this. In celebrating that memorial of their master's death, as those that were not ashamed to own their relation to and their dependence upon Christ and him crucified, they could not forget the death of Christ, yet they kept up this memorial, uh, yet they kept up this memorial of it and made it their constant practice because it was an institution of Christ to be transmitted to the succeeding ages of the church. Not ashamed to own their relationship relation to Christ crucified and their dependence on Christ crucified. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the world will think you are nuts to follow a crucified God. It's foolishness, is what Paul says, that they will think. A man that was crucified, you're going to follow him, you're going to worship him. And we're not ashamed. Because Christ is Lord, he is the Messiah, he is the one who's coming, he was here, he lived a perfect life, he died, he was raised from dead, he ascended, and he is coming. No, make no mistake. And he is Lord and he is King now. And so the Lord's Supper is the light of the church, meaning we are cross-centered and we're Christ-centered. And I don't want us to lose sight of this. Our obedience, our devotion to the apostles' teaching, our devotion to the fellowship is all based because of God loves it is all because of God and His grace shown to you in Christ. We go to Sunday school. We're participants in small groups. Uh, we, we serve uh, in the Upperage Christmas Child coming up here because Christ was broken for us, was broken for you while you were in the midst of the sin that you were in. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He gives us life. I was just get a picture I was, when I was thinking about this, uh, just the arrogance and the pride of my own life. And I was just thinking, like, I don't know, because I was always with Sawyer, messing around with Sawyer, but picture uh, a toddler who's in a pool swimming. And like your friends are on the outside of the pool looking. And so he is like, look at me, I'm swimming. But what he doesn't see is the hands of his father who's holding him up just below the water. As he swims. And so while we are still, even now, kind of arrogantly like, hey, check me out. Look what I'm doing. It is God who upholds us. Just underneath the water that we don't even see. And we don't even like to acknowledge. Even in the midst of that, Christ died for us. And he's interceding for us right now. Even in the midst of our sin. And so because of that, that's what the Lord's Supper points us to regularly. It's the lifeblood of the church. And so the, the ordinary Christian life obediently participates regularly in the Lord's Supper in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. It's Christ-centered and cross-centered. And the last point of this ordinary Christian life is prayers. And they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I really enjoy when, when Keith, AJ, Bob comes up and prays. Just pray for us one in our church, in our country, around the world, and just our praise. The power of prayer. And, and the power of the church is prayer, not because of anything we do, but because we're clean. We're crying for God to work for His power. And this one kind of just hurts me in person, because who, who can say, can say, hey, I'm good on prayer, right? There's no one who can say that. 
But is not our lack of prayer, is it the only thing that it points to is because of our lack of belief? Isn't it? Our lack of prayer is only because our lack of belief. Or better yet, only because our lack of trust in God. Is that not the only reason for our lack of prayer? May we be a people, may I be a person, that we just have this, this lingering aroma of prayer, this communion with God as we go up in our jobs, in our homes. Almost every, almost every move of the Spirit recorded in Acts was preceded by prayer. Almost every one. Almost every work of the Spirit in Acts was preceded by prayer. And may our busy schedules never be used as a justification for our lack of prayer. Martin Luther, who's a pretty busy guy, he's quoted saying this, I have so much to do today that I'm going to spend the first three hours in prayer. I have so much to do today that I'm going to spend the first three hours in prayer. I have so much to do today that I'm going to spend the first three hours in prayer. So the ordinary Christian life is marked by prayer. This continuing the faith is marked by prayer. It's, it's, it's marked by this regular participation in the Lord's Supper. It's marked by the fellowship, generosity, gathering. It's marked by a devotion to the apostles' teaching, to God's word that we have today. It's marked by a growing obedience. This continuing the faith. And then let's look at the impact. This ordinary Christian life has extraordinary impact because of the work and grace of God. And this will go a little quicker. Number one, there's awe, A-W-E, there's awe. And I was trying to think, when was the last time when I was just in awe? And then, like we hear about like uh, when you see something that's just amazing in, in nature, like the Grand Canyon, or just something like an eagle coming down, catching a fish out of the lake, it's like, that is so cool, right? That is so cool. But when was the last time that we were just in awe, overcome, speechless, this ordinary Christian life, this, this devotion, this obedience to God's word, to the fellowship, to prayer, the regular partaking of the Lord's Supper, it results in awe of God. In this awe, the actual word is fear. Fear of God. We hear that all through the Old Testament, this fear of God, this realization and awareness that God is God and I am not. God is God, Alex is not. God is God and you are not. The fear of God. It's like what Job when God reveals himself in a world, in the first words out of Job's mouth, and I love the different translations that try to capture this. Like different ones say, the first words he says, when God reveals himself, he says, I am unworthy. I am nothing. I am vile. I am so insignificant. That's the first words out of his mouth when God reveals himself. Isaiah, when he sees God, I am undone. It's over. I am done. This awe and fear of God. With that, we see uh, Luke records the, the miracles and signs and works being done by the apostles, which added to this, this awe, this fear. These, these miracles and these signs were done to validate the message. It was in the beginning of the church, it was developed in the message. Jesus says about his own miracles in John chapter 14, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 say the same thing. These miracles were done to validate his message that he's the son of God, that this is true, this is word from God, happened in the prophets in the Old Testament. 
the apostles, and some of their companions. These signs, these miracles were done to validate their message. Uh, uh, a side note, although we don't have this gift of miracles, God continues to do miracles so we, through prayer. And the greatest miracle that we see is when someone who's dead, who's an enemy of God, becomes, that God transforms and becomes a child of God. No rare miracle. When someone like me, who is so in sin, so nothing, anything but God, who hated this idea that there's someone out there that I had to take account to, when he steps in and saves me, a sinner, what greater miracle? What greater miracle? But these miracles, they brought further fear and awe as they confirmed that this is true. Jesus is Lord. Repent and trust in Christ. Another extraordinary impact from this ordinary Christian life is joy and praise. We see it in verse 46. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. A life that is devoted to this, this ordinary Christian life will have joy. Not because it's free of hardship, not because it's free of all this, but as, as we just saw, because uh, in this term we can praise God. He gives and takes away. Job again, but blessed be the name of the Lord. He has given us so much we don't deserve anything. We can have joy, a life that praises God, that's thankful. A third impact of this ordinary Christian life is favor with all people, which is interesting. Because remember, within this whole context, it's the promise that we will be hated. We just got done with the Beatitudes and the woes, that you are promised persecution. You're promised opposition. Paul makes that clear to Timothy. Yep, those who want to live a life of righteousness will be persecuted. Yet they had some favor with, with people. Verse 27, praise God and have a favor with all people. Because of their dependence on God, because of their obedience to God, they had integrity, they were of high virtue, and they worked hard. Who does not want a Christian mechanic over a secular, a lost mechanic? Does anyone else agree with that? Because we are confident that they will. They know that they have to answer to God. Not on account of their salvation or not, but they will account, They will make an account of God. To God. And they have virtue. And they are called to have integrity. And so within this picture, this new church that started here, the Jews have not started persecuting them. The Romans have not started persecuting them yet. And so they have favor with all people. Listen to this. This is, uh, this is from John Piper. He quotes from a quote from one of the Roman uh, emperors referring to the Christians and uh, two notes, number one, number one, two things. The Christians in this quote is referred to as Galileans and as atheists. And the reason for that Galileans referring to Galilee where it's coming from and atheists because in their mind, the, they have the pantheon of gods, right? Tons of gods. And so they called Christians who said there's only one God, they called them atheists. That's how they refer to them. So listen to this. The Roman Emperor Julian, he writes in the, the 14th century, or I'm sorry, the 4th century, he regrets this progress of Christianity because it's pulling people away from the Roman gods. He says this, atheism, the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through the loving surface rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, which are the Christians, Care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. 
while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. So the, 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 the secular ruler is saying, we hate the Christians. It's progressing, it's taken away from the Roman gods. And he says, they care for their people and they care for ours as well. And so you get this picture, they have favor with people. Why? Because they're caring, they're loving for people, just as we saw last week. And so they had favor with all people, they had favor with people because of their love. And so this ordinary Christian life, it has extraordinary impacts, extraordinary impacts because of the work and grace of God. There will be awe, there will be fear of God in the believers and the onlooking unbelievers. There will be joy and praise and worship. There will be favor, some favor, with those who are benefiting from Christians, being connected with Christians. And the last point, and the Lord added to them. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who are being saved. And so the ordinary Christian life, this continuing the faith, has extraordinary impact because of the work and grace of God. And there's people who come to Christ. And notice, please be very clear, it is God who adds and not us. It is God who adds. The growth of our church here at Solway, the growth of any church anywhere, is not dependent on starting the right program. It is not dependent on putting on the right community. Not at all. It is God who works. It is God who adds to the church. But that does not mean we do nothing. God has ordained the end as well as the means. And the means we see, we saw this, we continue to see this, is the word of God. The spirit of God uses the, his, the word of God that he inspired to save the people of God. We saw this in the message, Luke chapter 4. The power and priority of God's word. It was Jesus' priority. As people were continually coming to him to be healed, his priority says, hey, and he healed them. He did heal a lot. He said, my priority is to go and preach the good news of the, of the, of the uh, good news of the kingdom and the other towns. That was his priority. The word of God. Romans 10. I went through a ton of, of verses, if you remember that sermon, a ton of verses. But let me just repeat this with Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear with some, without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and adhering to the word of Christ. And so knowing that God adds to the church, knowing that he uses means, he uses his word to save his people, we go. We go with confidence. We go ready to give a defense of the hope that's within us when we're asked. We go ready to take opportunities that arise. We go confident, ready to invite people to our homes where they'll see God's word in our prayer as we worship together, as we eat. We go confident, inviting people to our small group, to church, to Sunday school, where they'll hear God's word. We go confidently because we know God will add to his church. And praise God, what a relief, amen? It's not based on me being perfect. It's not based on me saying the right things. It's not based on me being very persuasive in some kind of technique. It is God who adds. First Corinthians 3, as there's division in the Corinthian church about who they're following, who they're part of, Paulus, Paul, Peter. Paul writes this, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. It is God who works. And so this ordinary, this ordinary Christian life 
is continuing the faith as described in the very beginning of the church results in extraordinary impact because of the work and grace of God. Obedience, God's word, fellowship, generosity, gathering, the Lord's Supper prayer. And from this continuing the faith, there's extraordinary impact. And this is exactly what we do when we do here at Salt of Alcha. Even before I was here, this is why you guys were doing this before I was even here. This is why we focus on growing in the Lordship of Christ, in obeying the Lordship of Christ, all of Christ and all of life. This is why we're devoted to the Word of God, reading it, studying it in groups, preaching it, praying it. This is why we gather to fellowship weekly. This is why we give in generosity. This is why we regularly partake in the Lord's Supper as we remember the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the imminent return of Jesus, the Messiah. This is why we pray. And this is why we regularly pray for God to work and to bless this ordinary ministry in Solomon, Minnesota. This is why we have small groups. This is why we have church family monthly events like the Chili Dump today. This is why we have serving opportunities like Operation Christmas Child, uh, like the, the workday club here in mid-September. This is why we do it. I hope that what we see from this as this ordinary Christian life, this continuing in the faith, in the midst of everything going on, is not a list of to-dos. But it's response to what Christ has already done. It's response driven by love because God first loved us. So let me end with this. This ordinary Christian life is actually extraordinary. It is amazing because God has brought you from being a child of the devil to being a child of God. He grabs you and he puts you in a mission. His mission, honestly, to overtake the world, to make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and, and make, teach them to obey all they have commanded. It's extraordinary because you were an enemy of God, but now you are a friend. As Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you, uh, or I call you friend. The ordinary life is extraordinary because Christ lives in you and he loves you. And if you're not a Christian today, God calls you to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ alone because Jesus is returning. He is Lord. As Paul says in Philippians, every knee will bow, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. Every knee will bow. Jesus is Lord. It doesn't matter what Oprah says. It doesn't matter what all news says. It doesn't matter that Jesus is Lord, whether we like it or not, and praise God because He is a very, very, very good Lord. We're called, or Paul calls himself slave. He introduces Paul, a slave of Christ. Paul, he introduces about slaves. In Romans, he talks about us being slaves of righteousness. We're slaves to someone, whether sin or Christ. That Christ is an infinitely better slave master than sin is. And so the call is to continue in the faith, this ordinary Christian life that has extraordinary impact by the work and grace of God.